We also live on those dumplings from Flushing. And we live in Queens and like like stock up in bulk in those frozen dumplings. It's just we have a deep freezer of frozen dumplings. Hi, this is Catherine Losoda, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode, you're going to hear the readings from our July 11, 2017 event, featuring Angelica Baker, Lisa Coe, and Courtney Mom. Courtney has appeared at the series twice, and this is her first appearance at the series with her second novel, Touch. At the LIC Reading Series, we're very proud of being from Queens, so you're going to hear each of our readers share a Queens anecdote in addition to their readings. In our next episode, you'll hear the panel discussion from the same event. So let's get started with our first reader, Angelica Baker. Angelica Baker was born and raised in Los Angeles. She received her BA from Yale University and her MFA from Columbia. She's written essays and reviews for the Los Angeles Review of Books, Columbia, a journal of literature and art, The Rumpus, and Tin Houses, The Open Bar. Her fiction has appeared in Violet and One Teen Story. In fact, she's one of our two uh, One Story debutantes here this evening, which if you don't know, One Story, literary magazine that celebrates their debut authors each year. Um, She now lives in Brooklyn and has worked as a babysitter, a bartender, a waitress, a personal assistant, hostess, and a tutor. So we have lots of fun things to talk about during the panel discussion. Um, Our Little Racket was published on June 20th of this year by Echo, and it's her debut novel, guys. Uh, She's been called an incisive and elegant writer by the author Julia Pierpont and Ruman Alam, who read here last year, comments on the universality of her book's concerns when he says, Our Little Racket is a gratifying peek over the hedgerows of Greenwich laden with delicious anthropological detail. But like a modern-day Henry James, Angelica Baker uses the lives of the 1% to explore themes of love, loyalty, family, and friendship that matter to all of us. Let's give it up for our first reader. All right. So my book is called Our Little Racket, and it takes place in the fall of 2008 uh, in the wake of um, an investment bank that has just gone bankrupt. And it follows the family of the CEO of that bank, but it focuses on the women in the community. So in in what I'm about to read, it's been about a month since the bank failed. Uh, The CEO, the husband, has been holed up in the apartment in New York City, has not come home to Greenwich, which is where his family lives. And his wife has just driven in, taken a car to pick him up and bring him home. And the nanny who takes care of their three children, including their teenage daughter, is sitting up on the staircase waiting for them to come home. Lily sighed, stretching her body from her toes, then curled herself closer to the banister. She wrapped her fingers around the cool wood, its curves shapely, almost feminine. She knew, of course, the real reason Isabel was so upset by his absence. Bob D'Amico didn't do any more to raise these children than the man who came to clean the pool filters, and Isabel didn't need his help. It was the apartment in the city. It was his presence there on the nights he was expected here, home in Connecticut, his presence there right now. It was his refusal to draw himself over the lives of his family, his disinterest in crawling into bed with his wife, resting his head on her chest, listening to the sound of her breathing, that he'd chosen to be alone. After all this, all the time they'd been married and she'd been working for them, and one thing Lily would not have guessed about Isabel was that this surely illusory part of marriage was what mattered to her and her own. When Lily heard the noises from downstairs, they were not what she'd been expecting. She'd been waiting either for Isabel to return alone, this in truth had seemed most likely, or for the stately rustlings that usually announced their arrival home together. 
the sounds of keys hitting porcelain trays and wooden hangers knocking together in the concealed closet. The tiny noises that seemed so loud and obtrusive when you realized that they signified two bodies, the owners of which weren't speaking to each other. There had been one night when she'd asked for some time to go into the city to see her cousin's graduation from Hunter, but had come back on the Metro North and taken a cab rather than stay over with her parents. She'd relieved the housekeeper, who had agreed to stay to put the children to bed, and had been reading in the kitchen when they came home. They must have assumed that Lena, an older Ukrainian woman who inhaled with guttural sounds and sighed in a falsetto whenever the twins did anything even a tiny bit rowdy, would be dozing already. Lily had heard the door slam harder than usual, heard a body thrown against it with unmistakable force. She was on her feet moving towards the, the front door before she heard the rumblings of Bob's voice, Isabel's hissed replies, and realized that the words she was hearing were charged with erotic challenge and not malice or violence. She'd hovered there in the doorway for a second, more, longer than she would ever admit, before tiptoeing backward through the kitchen and sliding back out through the mudroom. Bob, please, she heard now from downstairs. She crouched on the steps like a runner awaiting the starting pistol. There was a loud thud, some sizable mass hitting the floor, and she knew that whatever was happening would not be managed by Isabel alone. But Jackson was wrong. She did listen to him, and she knew what he would say. Don't see anything. Wait until they've forgotten you're there, then listen. The next sound, the clatter of something sliding from the table, was loud enough that the boys might have heard it, and so she stood up. She tried to jog down the stairs with brisk intent, the way she would on any other day, attending to any other task, and when she came in and saw them, she kept her face neutral. Isabel was standing helpless above him, the front door still open behind her. Bob was splayed across the floor, twisted like he'd begun to flop himself over before thinking better of it. He had also knocked over the antique wooden table that stood beneath the mirror, its legs split like branches snapped for kindling. Lily had an absurd image suddenly of him locking them in, barricading the house against outside intrusions. They could do this to all the furniture, tear it to pieces, feed the fireplace, wrap the children in blankets and teach them to survive without the world beyond. Lily, Isabel was saying, I need your help. Just help me get him standing. I can get him upstairs. Just help me get him up off the floor. Isabel didn't seem surprised to see Lily, didn't seem caught off guard or overwhelmed with gratitude to see that the nanny had waited up for her. Lily swallowed the taste of something sour, but she didn't move. She didn't begin to help. Bob rolled over onto his back, his knees pointing at the ceiling, and tried to lift himself up off the floor. It was threatening, almost, to see so much energy left dormant, like an exquisite gourmet summer meal left out to spoil in the sun, the cheeses growing sweaty skins, the salad greens wilting. His meaty upper arms, straining at his white dress shirt, looked more frightening now than they ever had when they were in action. She was used to them flexing at intervals during even the most casual conversation, his hands in his pockets. She couldn't look at anything else now. He was mewling there on the ground, and all she could notice were his huge arms, the dark hairs on his knuckles, his thighs giant and tubular, clad uncomfortably in the silk legs of his trousers, the sickly, jaundiced-looking exposed strip of skin just above the top of his diamond-patterned socks. He'd always looked a bit off in the uniform, though, like he belonged in a wrestling singlet rather than formal attire. That wasn't because of what was going on right now. He'd always looked that way. Why was he even wearing a suit? Where had she found him? Jesus, Lily, help, Isabel barked. I'll never know, he was howling. I'll never get it, not when they put me in the ground. They'll fucking bury me, and I still won't understand why they let this happen to me. This was private, Lily thought. She shouldn't be here. She did not want to go over to them. She'd seen him drunk and jovial, drunk and vicious. They all had. But she'd never seen this, and she couldn't be certain that some part of him wouldn't be preserved somewhere in some tiny, well-lit room in that blackout-curtained brain, 
that he wouldn't hate her the next time he saw her. She had never been afraid of Bob D'Amico before, nervous, anxious, but not actually afraid. But she watched him lift one leg and then let the foot drop to the ground, watched him keening like an injured animal, and she saw that he no longer had any reason to go along with anything, to tolerate any presence in his life that would remind him of any of these moments. Thank you. The descriptions in our little racket are just so. Uh, I'm gonna give you. I, I didn't forget. No, I didn't forget. <laughs> What's that? No, people forget all the time. It's an unusual feature. Um, but yeah, the descriptions of like his of his body and everything. It's just so. It's it's. Yeah, but you didn't share a Queen's anecdote, so you do have to come back up here if you may. <laughs> Thank you. Let's give it up again for Angelica Baker. But you'll like my anecdote. Um, so I think probably, I was trying to think about like the first time I actually came to Queens, which I think was probably like seven years ago and I went to a Skrillex concert at MoMA PS1 or something. But I was trying to think of a more interesting anecdote. But I was thinking like actually what I associate this particular part of Queens with is part one, this reading series. And part two, uh, my friend David's wedding, and he's in the audience. So those are my anecdotes. My friend David got married down the street, and then I come to this reading series as a non-participant frequently, and that's what I associate. When I'm in this neighborhood for other reasons, that's what I associate this neighborhood with. So yeah, nailed it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I forgive you for forgetting that. Yes, guys. When you think of Queens, think of the LSC reading series. <laughs> Our next reader is Lisa Coe. Yes. Lisa Coe is the author of The Leavers, a novel which won the 2016 Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. Her writing has appeared in Best American Short Stories 2016, The New York Times, Epigee Journal. By the way, you're, Lisa had a Modern Love column in The New York Times like last week that was amazing. Go check it out. Who knows modern love, right? It's good. Epigee Journal, Narrative, O Magazine, Copper Nickel, Story Cord, One Teen Story, Brooklyn Review, and elsewhere. She's been awarded fellowships and residencies from the New York Foundation for the Arts, the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, the McDowell Colony, the Helene Wurlitzer Foundation, uh, Jerome Foundation, lots of residencies and awards. You just, you're very decorated and for a good reason. Um, she was born in Queens, guys. We're legit tonight. Born in Queens and raised in Jersey, she lives now in Brooklyn. Uh, Barbara Kingsolver was, is the, the author who announced the Penn Award. And what she said of The Leavers was that it is a book perfectly of this moment. And I think you'll agree. Let's welcome Lisa to the stage. Is this good? Can everyone hear me? Yeah. All right. Oh, Queens, Queens. Okay, should I start with the Queens anecdote? Okay. Um, I was born in Queens, um, as Catherine mentioned, and I guess I kind of feel like I've been kind of like making my way back there my whole life. Um, I was born in Flushing in a hospital that has since burned down. Um, at the time, my parents lived in Sunnyside. And I feel like Queens was sort of the place where they first found like 
community and belonging in the U.S. Um, they were both immigrants from the Philippines. My dad came in the early 60s to go to school in Logan, Utah, which you can imagine was not a very welcoming place back then. And like the minute he graduated, he just like drove his ass off to New York City and was like, here I am, finally. And he moved to Flushing. He met my mom a few years later here. She also moved um, from Manila to Queens. And yeah, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey for the most part, but I always felt like Queens was this place that we were exiled from. Like we were trapped in this boring, conservative, white suburb. And Queens was this place where my parents like had crazy parties and wore cool clothes. And um, one day, you know, when I was finally able to leave, I would move back to New York. And actually the first um, apartment that I had out of college was in Queens. So I always feel like I'll move back one day. Like it's, it'll be like the last remaining normal part of New York City once like Brooklyn becomes truly intolerable, which is gonna happen really soon. <laughs> Sorry, Brooklyn. I mean, I've lived there for a long time. So <laughs> anyway, thank you all for being here. Thanks, Catherine, for inviting me. <laughs> and I'm really happy to be here. Um, all right, so I'll, I'll start off reading a first, the first few pages of the levers, and then I'll read a little from the middle. Bless you. The day before Deming Gove saw his mother for the last time, she surprised him at school. A navy blue hat sat low on her forehead, scarf around her neck like a big brown snake. What are you waiting for, kid? It's cold out. He stood in the doorway of PS33 as she zipped his coat so hard the collar pinched. Did you get off work early? It was 4.30, already dark, but she didn't usually leave the nail salon until 6. They spoke, as always, in Fujinese. Short shift. Michael said you had to stay late to get help on an assignment. Michael's like Deming's surrogate brother. Her eyes narrowed behind her glasses, and he couldn't tell if she bought it or not. Teachers didn't call your mom when you had detention, only gave a form you had to return with a signature, which he always forged. Michael, who never got detention, had left after eighth period, and Deming wanted to get back home with him, in front of the television, where, in the safety of a laugh track, he didn't have to worry about letting anyone down. Snow fell like clots of wet laundry. Deming and his mother walked up Jerome Avenue. In the back of a concrete courtyard, three older boys were passing a blunt, coats unzipped, wearing neither backpacks nor hats, sweet smoke and, thin, and slow laughter warming the thin February air. I don't want you to be like that, his mother said. I don't want you to be like me. I didn't even finish eighth grade. What a sweet idea, not finishing eighth grade. He could barely finish fifth. His teacher said it was an issue of focus, of not applying himself. Yet when he tripped Travis Bopa in math class, Deming had been as shocked as Travis was. I'll come to your school tomorrow, his mother said. Talk to your teacher about that assignment. He kept his arm against hers, loved the scratchy sound of their jackets rubbing together. She wasn't one of those TV moms, always hugging their kids or watching them with bemused smiles, but insisted on holding his hand when they crossed a busy street. Inside her gloves, her hands were red and scraped, the skin angry and peeling, and every night before she went to sleep, she rubbed a thick lotion onto her fingers and winced. Once, he asked if it made them hurt less. She said only for a little while, and he wished there was a special lotion that could make new skin grow, a pair of superpower gloves. Short and blocky, she wore loose jeans. Never had he seen her in a dress, and her voice was so loud that when she called his name, dogs would bark and other kids jerked around. 
When she saw his last report card, he thought her shouting would set off the car alarms four stories below. But her laughter was as loud as her shouting, and there was no better, more gratifying sound than when she slapped her knees and cackled at something silly. She laughed at things that weren't meant to be funny, like TV dramas and the swollen orchestral soundtracks that accompanied them, or better yet, at things Deming said, like when he nailed the way their neighbor Tommy always went, not bad, not bad, not bad, when they passed him in the stairwell, an automatic response to a hello, how are you, that hadn't yet been issued. When he had lived in Minjiang with his grandfather, Deming's mother had explored New York by herself. There was a restlessness to her, an inability to be still or settled. She jiggled her legs, bounced her knees, cracked her knuckles, twirled her thumbs. She hated being cooped up in the apartment on a sunny day, paced her rooms from wall to wall to wall, a cigarette dangling from her mouth. Who wants to go for a walk, she would say. Her boyfriend Leon would tell her to relax, sit down. Sit down? But we've been sitting all day. Deming would want to stay on the couch with Michael, but he couldn't say no to her, and they'd go out no family but each other. He would have her to himself, an ambling walk in the park or along the river, making up stories about who lived in the apartments they saw from the outside. A family named Smith, five kids, father dead, mother addicted to bagels. He speculated the day they went to the Upper East Side. To bagels, she said. What flavor bagel? Everything bagels, he said, which made her giggle harder until they were both bent over on Madison Avenue, laughing so hard no sounds were coming out. And his stomach hurt, but he couldn't stop laughing, old white people giving them stink eye for stopping in the middle of the sidewalk. Deming and his mother loved everything bagels, the sheer balls of it, the New York audacity that a bagel could proclaim to be everything, even if it was only top of sesame seeds and poppy seeds and salt. A bus lumbered past, spraying slush. The walk sign flashed on. You know what I did today, his mother said. One lady, she had a callus the size of your nose on her heel. I had to scrape all that dead skin off. It took forever, and her tip was shit. You'll never do that if you're careful. He dreaded this familiar refrain. His mother could curse, but the one time he let motherfucker bounce out in front of her, loving the way the syllables got all meatball-y in his mouth, she had slapped his arm and said he was better than that. Now he silently said the word to himself as he walked, one syllable per footstep. Did you think when I was growing up, a small girl your age, I thought, hey, one day I'm gonna come all the way to New York so I could pick Gao Gao out of a stranger's toe? That was not my plan. Always be prepared, she liked to say. Never rely on anyone else to give you things you could get yourself. She despised laziness, softness, people who were weak. She had few friends, but was true to the one she had. She could hold a fierce grudge, would walk an extra three blocks to another grocery store because two years ago, a cashier at the one around the corner had smirked at her lousy English. It was lousy, Deming agreed. How am I doing with time? Should I have one? Okay. Um, all right, I'll just read another two pages. So the book is actually a dual narrative. Um, part of it is narrated from Deming's point of view, which you just heard, and then the rest is from his mom's point of view. Um, and it kind of talks about what happens before and after their separation. So what happens in this scene right after the scene I just read is his mother goes to work and she doesn't come home. Um, so I'll read a little bit from one of Polly's sections. Um, in them, she's actually narrating from first person and she's kind of telling her son the story of her life. So she addresses her son as you. I always told you not to be like me. I quit school in grade eight, stupid. 
I'd ask a boy who was an even worse student than I was, but whose parents were cadre members to give me a cigarette. Girls don't smoke, I heard him say, and that was a dare I couldn't resist. The inhale made my lungs burn, but I held it in and forced down the coughs and exhaled so smooth and neat, letting the smoke exit my lips in a perfect curl. Teacher Wu paddled me, but not the boy. I leaned over his desk as he whacked my ass with his wooden board, and as I faced my classmates' stunned faces, I laughed. I'd seen boys cry when they got the paddle, but this smacking was no big deal. I didn't go back to school after that, and the summer passed in the slowest ooze. My hair grew longer, my face sharper, and I swept the rooms until the floors were clean enough to lick. The whole village was sleepy that summer, a still pond on a humid day. Even our chickens' eggs were smaller, like she'd struggled to push them out. One afternoon at the end of the summer, when I was 15, I was doing the laundry. Couldn't wait any longer for the weather to cool, and the clothes needed washing. I filled the plastic basins, wrung out the clothes, and strung them one by one from the line. Then I heard a small squeak and looked up, and there was a neighbor boy, Hai Feng, taller than when I'd seen him last, staring at me from atop a bicycle. Want a ride, he said. My father called him the wimpy Lee boy. Soft like a pillow, he said, when we overheard Hai Feng's parents ripping him a new one for failing the high school entrance test. I kind of felt bad for him. Plenty of kids wouldn't make it to grade nine. We all had as much of a chance of going to college as flying to the moon. Hai Feng's dark hair stuck to his face in the summer heat. He had a widow's peak that made him look older than he was. His limbs were gangly, but there were ropey muscles on his calves and forearms, tightly balled and hidden. Surprise. It wasn't like I had anything better to do. I climbed on the bike's rack, balancing sideways, batting mosquitoes from my face, the tall grass tickling my feet. Hai Feng pedaled, the sky gaping and bright, the wheels squeaking as we rolled through the fields. I sniffed him. He smelled like salt. Let's go to the river, I said, but we were already on our way. Thank you. Thank you to Lisa Ko. Um, I loved that line about the everything bagel when I first read it, and I loved hearing it again. It's so true, but they're everybody, they're so good. Like it's audacity, but it's like somehow New York came. Is it? Is it? Do you know? Does anyone know if Everything Bagel is a New York creation? Does anyone know that? It must be. <laughs> <clears throat> Courtney, mom. Yay, Courtney, mom. She is the author of the acclaimed novel, and wait for it, this is one of the best titles ever. I'm having so much fun here without you. <laughs> we have a fan in the audience. Um, the chapbook Notes from Mexico and the new novel Touch, selected by O oh, the Oprah Magazine, Marie Claire, Glamour, and many other outlets is one of the best books of the summer. Her short fiction, book reviews, and essays on the writing life have been widely published in outlets such as the New York Times, Tin House, Electric Literature, and BuzzFeed, and she's co-written films that have debuted at Sundance and won awards at... I never say it right. Do you say Cannes or Con? Do you say can? Yeah. Ask the French guy. What do you say? You just say can? That's right. Can? I'm saying it wrong, right? I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> at various points, well, there's another, right. At various points in her life, she has been a trend forecaster, a fashion publicist, 
a party promoter. She's currently a product namer. And uh, she works from her home in Lynchfield County, Connecticut, where she founded the interdisciplinary creative retreat, The Cabins, that brings makers from different disciplines together for four days in the woods. And full disclosure, guys, I got to be a participant at Courtney's first The Cabins retreat last year. And it's like magic. It's like magic in the woods and with water in a lake. And a the most beautiful library you've ever seen with like a working fireplace. It's just, it's, it's special. And I know that she's already selected the group for this year, but you should keep your eyes open for future. I hope you do it forever. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited to have Courtney here to read from touch. It's, it's going to make you think about your cell phones and your connectedness to other people. And it's also really funny and really sexy. So let's give it up for Courtney. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I don't know how to do. <clears throat> can, can you hear me? Yes. You, you don't think they can hear me. Okay. He's like, no. Okay. Anecdote. Queens. Is it okay if I say something about flushing or is that too far away? Okay. Um, so my husband and I live in the boondocks. We live in the magical country where the water is mad. Everything's great. What's not great <laughs> is that it's mostly white people and we eat white food. And there's no ethnic food. There's no takeout. There's no anything. And um, we had uh, house guests out recently for the weekend. And they came up with these massive bags of frozen dumplings. <laughs> No, it wasn't recently. They came in the fall. And, and these dumplings saw us through a tough winter. The winters are always tough because we both, my husband and I work from home. The winters are really long. We work together in the same house in, in creative fields. Um, and, you know, we have the president that we have. It was a dark winter. And those <laughs> dumplings, from time to time, we'd be like, meals, as you know, when you have a kid, which we do, you have to have them. You, you can't skip them. And, and you have to make them. And when you live where we live and there's no takeout, you actually have to make them. And you get to these points where you're like, I just can't deal. There's nothing. What are we going to do? And then we remember the frozen dumplings and life. We had one more day of life. Um, I don't know because our friends brought them. I mean, that sounds right. They came in a bag. Frozen. Um, okay, so Touch. Touch is um, a book about a famous trend forecaster named Sloan Jacobson who's hired by a huge consumer goods company, so big it's called Mammoth, <laughs> to predict um, trends in technology. But while she starts working for this Mammoth company, she starts to feel like the next trends of technology are going to be no technology, that we're at an apex, we can't handle anymore, and people are going to start taking handwriting classes and dance classes and touching each other again. Um, so, what the hell was I? Uh, sorry, it's been a long day. Um, <laughs> I, I think you said this, I used to work in trend forecasting, and... Uh, you, you you kind of have nothing to go on but instinct and intuition. Um, 
And and for the last several several years, as I watched myself and my family and my friends make really mundane, uninteresting decisions, you know, they would rely on their cell phones to decide whether they were hungry or horny or, you know, they just weren't using this or this or this anymore at all. It was all this. Um, the former trend forecaster in me started to wonder whether human instincts could go, could was endangered, you know, and whether it could actually become extinct. Um, so this was my answer to that question that I posed myself in my head um, and wrote all alone in my room, as we do. Um, so I'll just read from the beginning, not you know, a little bit into the beginning, Sloan is in a first-class cabin because she's big deal. Um, coming from Paris with her life partner Roman, um, and they are en route to New York. Roman's French. <laughs> um, beside her. Roman had given up reading about the travel impacts of the European debt crisis and was scrolling through the airline film choices, his finger guiding him to new releases. Sloan knew with neon certainty that Roman would pick Pitch Perfect 3. His America feelism was non-discriminatory, fleece sportswear, SUVs, sub-zero refrigerators, discount superstores, the viralism of American patriotism, flags sprouting up in window boxes and front lawn patches after grim events. Pop culture, online culture, he was taken by it all. To someone like Roman, trained to look for signs and signifiers in every experience, romantic comedies held the key to understanding the American way of life. Being inordinately excited about acapella music was apparently step one. While Roman went starry-eyed at the Universal's logo spinning on his screen, Sloan pulled the customs immigration form out of her seat pocket, remembering how the stewardess's eyebrows had arched when she asked for two. One per family, Carly had repeated, certain that the polished people before her were espoused. Well, in Paris, traditional marriage was about as popular as private health care. Roman and Sloan had been together 10 years. His name was on her electric bill, but they were never having children. Their careers were their children. There you had it. In fact, their careers had been boosted by their joint decision not to breed. The famous American forecaster and the Frenchy intellectual, the couple who has everything except kids, Le Figaro, July 2013. The ultimate anti-mom was the headline of a recent profile of Sloan in British Vogue. Reproduction is akin to eco-terrorism, she'd been quoted in that particular mag. It had been the interview hour's fault. 3 p.m., her worst time, low blood sugar, doldrums. She and the bouncy journalist, the Chardonnay, had been cheap. Eco-terrorism. It was a good thing that Sloane's family didn't read much. Or maybe they developed an interest in European fashion glossies since she'd last seen them three years ago. She wasn't in a position to know. But per her sister's annual 4th of July newsletter, yes, she actually did this, Lila was pregnant with her third kid. In the wake of their father's death when Lila was 18 and Sloan 22, Lila, not Sloan, had turned out to be the family's success story. She'd fought back death with birth. Sloan had made predictions that had revolutionized the tech industry. She'd presaged the symbolism of roots to the food industry before 9-11, predicted the now ubiquitous touch screen gesture, the swipe. 
She'd lectured and consulted and symposiumed in 37 countries to date. She owned an apartment in the sixth arrondissement of Paris, had the kinds of friends known only by their first names. A lot of people cared about the life that she'd constructed. She used to, too. Roman tapped the screen to pause the inanity before him. Did you do this? He asked too loudly, headphones still on. Sloane put a finger to her lips before she answered. Passengers were sleeping. Do what? Sing with girls? <laughs> she, she narrowed her eyes. No, no. And the boys sing too? They're popular? Despite herself, she laughs. Acapella wasn't cool when I was in college, she said. It was made cool by a TV show called Glee. Roman's eyebrows arched. Everyone knows Glee. Sloane bristled against the new dismissiveness. Roman knew everything about everything now that he was a cyber star. For a trend forecaster, it was unfortunate that she preferred the odd old version of her boyfriend of Roman 2.0. When they first met, Roman had been a brainy market researcher for the consumer goods company Unilever in France. She'd been immediately taken by his inventive wit and a kind of bemused composure that she'd later identify as optimism, unusual for the French. They'd met at a focus group for a new line of male soap. The consumer feedback had been useless. I want something that smells like charcoal, but also good, like soap, was one example. But when Roman bid the industry suits goodbye, he did so with a perfectly delivered Annika glasses. I don't know what I'll wash with, gentlemen, but I wash my hands of this. He's a little pompous, Sloane remembered thinking, but he sure seems like fun. These days, he was mostly pompous. Roman had transitioned out of market research into professional punditism, delivering lectures across Europe on the shifting paradigms of touch. He'd even coined a term for his research, neo-sensualism making him a neo-sensualist. The term had stuck. Between his op-eds on how physicality was changing in a digitalized world and his increasingly colorful online presence, Roman had claimed a place for himself among Europe's intelligentsia. But once he incorporated the Zentai suit into his social media feed and presentations, the match of internet stardom was lit. The first time Sloane saw Roman in the seamless bodysuit that hallmarked the Japanese practice, it had been in their Paris kitchen, and the only word for what came tumbling out of her mouth was a guffaw. The bodysuit was integral. There weren't any holes for the eyes or the mouth. The whole thing was entered into by a tiny little slit. When it was put on properly, it looked like the wearer's body had been dipped in liquid pewter. You look like a superhero, Sloane said, glancing up from her work. What's it for? What's it for? The phrase chagrined her now. She'd been so sure that the donning of the suit was a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, something for a panel, a crowd-pleaser, clickbait. The Zentai suit is fascinating, Roman said, gliding his hands down his body. It's an invitation and a refusal, no? It presents the body as an anonymous thing that can be contemplated but never truly accessed. I should have worn I should have worn one. Diego got me one, yeah. <laughs> he got one for him and one for me. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, he moved his arms behind his weirdo head. I'm almost done. I found my avatar. And so it seems he had. At an American university, Roman probably would have been fired for delivering a lecture in fetish wear. But in Paris, he was celebrated. 
The form of it meant it met his new function, which was to speculate about sensuality in the digital age. He presented the suit as a conduit for temptation and refusal. You can see how far the implications could go, he was fond of saying. Birth control? Affairs? Affairs, she remembered asking. If it's non-penetrative, non-tactile, can it be considered cheating? These are important questions, so... I'll leave you in the <laughs> That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob, and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.